Feast of Tabernacles has arrived. The final festival on God's biblical calendar. The final step of his redemptive plan to restore us as his people back to the face to face with him. That inheritance that was lost in the garden. But what if I told you that celebrating this feast is not about a week of celebration, a week of camping, a week of fellowship, but it is about the very way we view our spiritual lives and walk it out. That the true celebration of tabernacles is to follow the greatest call that Yeshua would ever deliver to his disciples to become tabernacles themselves. See, brothers and sisters, when we have talked about being a temple of the Holy Spirit, we we often say things like, yeah, eat healthy, you're a temple. And yes, that's fine. But there is such a deeper layer that we have been missing for centuries that God today is awakening his people to. That God today is restoring us back to the fullness of the walk of Christ, a worship of spirit and truth. See, the question is, is if Yeshua was going to be face to face with you, the very thing this feast is celebrating, what would happen? Would you be as one of the cities as it's written in the scriptures? where it is written that he could not do many things among them because of their unbelief. Or if he looks at you, would he consider you as one as to whom it was written about that he was amazed at the faith of the centurion? Go, they are healed. Go in peace. I have released your bondage from you. See, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I refuse to believe that my Messiah, that my God has changed the way he does things. I refuse to believe that he is no longer in the business of setting the captives free. I refuse to believe he no longer heals the sick absolutely miraculously, that he does no longer cast out devils from people, that he no longer delivers us from our emotional traumas of the past, that he no longer lifts the depression from shoulders. I don't know about you. But when I am face to face with him, I want him to say, I know you, the one of faith, the one who did not just say that he believes, but the one who actually had a true faith that was manifested in his life with action because you became my temple. You became my home where I liked to dwell in when I was upon the earth, when my Holy Spirit was sent to be with man. See, brothers and sisters, uh, for us to really understand the full story of where we are today and what we have today, 
we have to talk for a brief moment about what happened and where we have fallen from. When we walked in the garden and Adam and Eve walked in the garden with the Father, he tabernacled among them. He walked among them and they were face to face with him in perfect relationship. But of course, as we all know, a lie came in that was deceitful. But Adam and Eve fell for it and they betrayed our Lord. And as they were cast from that garden, cast away from his presence and the face to face they had with him, the garden had angels placed before it, guarding the entrance of the garden with a flaming sword going to the left and to the right. But God has a plan and God starts this plan with Israel. And he comes and he delivers Israel out of Egypt by his mighty wonders, by his Holy Spirit operating through Moses. But as they are in this wilderness, God desires to take a step closer to them. He desires to tabernacle among them somewhat like it was in the garden. But there's a problem. They have sin. See, God can't just be among them because they would perish if they were to be face to face with him. Not even Moses could be face to face, but could only see the back of the Lord. And so God tells Israel to create a tabernacle, a building of sorts where his spirit could indwell in past the veil, where no man except the high priest can enter it, but once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so this building communicates to Israel that there's still something wrong, that they can't come in. And they come and they bring these offerings, these sacrifices, which continuously remind them and reinforces them of their guilty conscience reminding them of their sin. And as they look upon the veil and as they as they look upon the the temple, as they look upon the decorations of it all, we witness it is decorated like nothing but a garden. And God tells us, for example, in 1 Kings 629, the walls of the main room and the inner room were decorated with carved figures of winged creatures, palm trees and flowers. And 2 Chronicles 3.14 tells us, and he made the veil of blue, purple, crimson fabric of fine linen, and he worked cherubim upon it. See, the temple is decorated as the garden because it is a picture of the garden on earth. That holy of holies was where the spirit of God was and where his truth was, the tablets of stone, the commandments. But Israel knew that even though it's there, they don't have access to his Holy Spirit in the same way as it was in the garden because they can't enter it. And and just as that veil is there guarding the entrance and the angels are embroidered upon it, it is there as a picture of how Israel is kept out of the garden. But God has a plan. And thousands of years later, Yeshua, the Messiah, is born into this world. And when he grows up and enters his ministry, he, just like the father, walked through the garden before. Now, after the fall, 
Yeshua walks by the garden. We see about this account happening at the very feast of tabernacles. And as he is walking by the temple that has now been built in Jerusalem, he looks upon the people and he sees them. He sees a garden, if you will, dry, that needs nourishment, that needs loving water, a garden. He sees a people that even though they had the the law of God, they had the Torah, they did their Torah portions, they read the Torah every Sabbath in the synagogue. He saw that they lacked life. And he stands up and with a loud voice, it is written that he shouts out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and I will give him living waters. And not only that, but if you drink of me out of your belly, you will spring up to become a well of loving waters yourself, too. And we read in the book of John, chapter 739 on it says this, he said about the spirit whom those who believed on him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. Yeshua is saying to them, I know it's been a long time since our separation because of the fall. I know that you are dry and in need of substance. I am here to water my father's garden in ways that the first Adam never could. I am here to restore the breach. He is here and he is proclaiming that everything that you know about the tabernacle is about to shift. That this building that you have been coming to to worship my father as he instructed you to do and as it has been holy indeed to do. He's saying, look, a time is coming. But he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, promising her loving water. And he explains to her that it's not going to be on this mountain or that mountain. But I, my, I am coming and calling a worship of spirit and truth for this will be the acceptable form of worship, he says. And the Samaritan woman went away there, filled to the brim, even forgetting the water jar she's been relying on all her life, though to gather the waters of the world all her life that that fill but never truly satisfied because it was always simply temporary. See, the Samaritan woman became one of the first temples. A picture of what was about to happen to all of God's people who would believe what he has to say today. See, brothers and sisters, he at this feast of Sukkot was prophetically speaking about the coming crucifixion, because just as at the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua stood up and cried out regarding the promise of a loving water at the crucifixion, he is there on the cross about to breathe his last and he cries out. And ultimately, the veil is torn from top to bottom at the temple, the building. And everything changes. 
Because the Holy Spirit that was there out of reach is restored to Israel to enter their temples and write the law that was also out of reach because they could never keep it, to write that law on their hearts as Ezekiel prophesied would happen. And as Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesied would happen. And all, and we find Israel being spoken of by Peter when he says, 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves are now like living stones built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua, the Messiah. He's saying, I am making you a tabernacle, the garden that the tabernacle represented. I am now putting a taste of it inside of you. I am making you a walking garden so that when the world sees you, they see the inheritance that they have lost because of the fall to drive them to jealousy, to come back into covenant. So that when they come to you and the spirit of God comes through your torn veil and touches their life in wonders and in power, they encounter the living God. But what does that mean? I mean, just think about this, like you being a temple. I mean, and just think about this, the building, right? The temple building, we all think about it. And we're like, wow, that's so holy, right? The, 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 anyone can't just go in there because they would just die before, right? And now God is saying, I am putting that holy of holies inside of you so that my spirit can come and live in you. Like, what does that mean? Regarding who I am and who you are, what does that mean regarding how I treat you as a brother or a sister and how you treat me? What fear of God would you have if you were to enter the Holy of Holies? Because here's the reality. Listen to me. What we have become if we believe the promise of the Holy Spirit is the reality of what the temple was pointing to. The temple building was a picture of what God has always wanted to do in reality in his people. This spiritual work he has done is not just a symbolic story, a picture. It is the reality of what occurs in the one of belief. Because Yeshua says, If you believe in me, not just in saying Jesus come into my heart and not just saying, oh, you're my Messiah, but a belief in everything that he has promised and said that we ought to become if we ought to, if we drink from him, if we believe that he is saying you will become the same spring of living water that I was to this world, you will become the garden. And that's why he said, it is good that I go. It's like, what's so good about that, Yeshua? Doesn't Doesn't sound like a good deal to us. But he's saying it is good. Because while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But a time is coming when I will ascend and I will send the promise of my Holy Spirit and I will put my light in you. And you will become the light of the world. My desire is to work in and through you, shine in and through you and change this world in and through you. Do you know what this means? Like it means that most of Christianity has missed half the gospel itself because they have failed to see what their true purpose in this world actually is. 
See, brothers and sisters, when you go to do your shopping at the grocery store, take your kid to school, or go to your job, or do whatever it is you do, you're not going to take your kid to school, or go to the grocery store, or go to do your job. You are going out into this world with a purpose, first and foremostly, to manifest the kingdom of God. And that is why it was always at top of mind for Yeshua to proclaim the mission to his disciples. And we have thrown it all for ourselves to say, that's just what the G, that's just what the disciples did. That's just what my pastor does. That's just what the clergy does. The lie of the Catholic church that has taught that the people are just there to come to church and listen and go home. And that's all that they need to do has, is still a lie that we have inherited. But the true gospel is that we are saved by his blood, but that he also poured out something else for us. See, when he was on that cross and he cried out and he breathed his last and the spirit and his spirit left his body. Something happened thereafter. A soldier came. And in order to test whether he was truly dead, he took a spear and thrusted it into his side. And out of his side came blood and water. The blood and the water. Because think about this. When Yeshua is standing at the Feast of Tabernacles, proclaiming that he has living water for the people at that same feast, the water libation ceremony is being conducted by the priests where they are taking water and wine and pouring it out on the altar. Water and wine, the wine representing the blood, having it all being poured out on the altar, just as Yeshua is now pouring the water and the wine, the water and the blood out from his side for us all. This is what he is talking about at Passover as well. When he says we need to partake in him, when he always speaks about how we need to drink of him, how we need to have his loving water and how we need to drink of his blood. You see, he is saying, I need you to partake in me. And th- this is all about the remission of sins regarding the blood. And that is what we always proclaim as the gospel. Hallelujah. He has cleansed us from our iniquities. But what we have failed to see is the purpose for what he has cleansed us for. See, he didn't just cleanse you so you can go into heaven one day, even though he is giving you eternal life. Amen. But he has cleansed you so that you can actually also have a living water come from you. He has cleansed you so that the spirit can now actually enter your temple because it is clean and a holy place, a place where you won't die if his spirit were to enter you anymore because you've been made clean. See, if we proclaim that the gospel is just Jesus died for you so you can get into heaven, we are proclaiming a half gospel and it causes half conversions. People who believe in him and I'm not saying they're not saved, but they do not live for him in the way he called. See, brothers and sisters, to partake in the blood and in the water means that we partake in the fact that he died for us for remission of sins, but we partake in the water 
and understanding that he has called us to become a fountain of living water. The true gospel and the full gospel is that he died for our salvation, but not only that, but for our empowerment. This is why just before he ascends and leaves his disciples, he's about to drop something important because this is his last words to them while he is with them in this manner. And he says to them the following in Mark chapter 16, 15, go into the world, proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cause our demons speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink daily poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And the Lord Yeshua, when he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The reason he is telling them this as his most important, perhaps last words is because this is what he is calling them to do until he sees them again, until he can drink with them from the cup again. See, brothers and sisters, this is why he says these signs will accompany those who believe. Let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? But to believe is not just Jesus, I believe, but it's to actually believe with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Pick up your cross for the sake of that belief. He says, if that's your faith, you will see the Holy Spirit come and fill you when you step out and believe what he has promised you and you will see signs follow your life. This is not just a promise for the 12 because he gave it to the 72 and he gave and those 72 laid hands and more disciples were made and the world was overthrown with the gospel because it was the full gospel, not an American watered down. Just get your ticket into heaven kind of gospel, but a gospel that actually changed people because other people who were filled with this spirit actually became the gardens, became the place places of the presence that God called them to be. And so they were not scared of being confronted with these opportunities. When they saw a sick man or woman, they laid hands so they can recover. When these other opportunities came across believers like with Moses, he picked up serpents and he did not get bitten. When we see these other opportunities of of when we are possibly going to be poisoned, we understand that his spirit is empowering us and is saving us and is preserving our souls if we are busy with his gospel and the kingdom work in the midst of it all. He is saying you have you believe he's saying I will speak in tongues through you. See, brothers and sisters, you say, I don't see any of these things. It could perhaps be because you have missed a lot of what the gospel is actually all about. A gospel of the kingdom of God. We pray the prayer, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Why do you think Yeshua told us to pray that if he didn't let if he didn't want us to actually mean what we are praying? 
But now I want you to ask yourself just a very simple question. When he was being pierced on that cross, why was he pierced? Well, it's like we said, the soldier wanted to test to ensure that he is actually dead. See, brothers and sisters, it is important for us to ensure that we have been pierced. To ensure that we, as Paul writes, have been baptized into his death, that we have died with him, that we have picked up our cross, not just symbolically, not, but that we have actually devoted our lives and souls to him. So that we can, just as he was raised, resurrected, because death had no hold on him, we can be raised and resurrected. You see, if you are actually resurrected, living today, resurrected, what does that mean for us as a temple of the Holy Spirit? It means that a dead man does not care what others think. If you're still living in your flesh, you're still going to be caring what people think. You're still going to be in bondage to them. You see, I don't know when was the last time you walked through a cemetery, but if you walk through a graveyard and you see the graves, you, you can ask yourself, what do these people think that I think of them? Well, the answer is they think nothing because they are dead. They couldn't care less about what you think of them. They have other cares now. See, brothers and sisters, we care about this world because we have, do not have the cares of his kingdom. We care about what people think of us because we don't care about what God thinks of us. We care about this kingdom in this world because we don't care about bringing God's kingdom down upon it. God is calling us to actually be pierced as he was pierced because it can only be from a pierced man or woman that the Holy Spirit can come and bring living water from from your side flowing out so that others can see, can taste and see that he is good. And here's here's just a deeper question that I need to ask you. You know, when we look at what happened in the first century with the priesthood that was so corrupt, not tending to the father's tabernacle that was standing well at all. And Yeshua continuously came against them about their hypocrisies. And why was this? It was because those priests cared more about their own standing in society, their own uh, kingdoms compared to the fathers. And what a difference is there really if we walk around in this world and as tabernacles of the Holy Spirit and we are priests keeping of our tabernacles to offer spiritual sacrifices to our Lord. But what if we walk around as a tabernacle that never had its veil torn? What makes us different from those priests? Because we care so much about what people think of us that we don't want the Holy Spirit to exit out and touch someone. We, we say, yes, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. But, but when it comes to, to him actually convicting you to do something, like actually do something spiritual, to actually give a word of knowledge to that cashier in the Walmart, 
to, 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 to actually do something in that boardroom at work, to actually understand that I'm a temple. This Walmart is supposed to change if the temple of God entered it. You see, but if you walk in there and you walk out and it's as if nothing ever happened, you, you're saying, Holy Spirit, you, you, you dare not get out of me. You dare not touch anyone through me. You just stay in there because I'm afraid they're going to think of me as being a fool. Oh, man. Like if we truly understand what, what's at stake. If we truly understand that, well, this is actually our purpose, we would not be burdened by what I am saying, but we would be excited for it. If you truly die to yourself, you would not be burdened by what I have to say, but you would be like, oh, this is this is amazing. This is what God is allowing me to partake in. He is giving me this precious inheritance that he he's not just doing this himself, but he actually wants to partner with me. He actually has made me a precious priest of his to give rule over a garden. He's restoring back to you your garden inheritance to rule the garden as Adam and Eve ruled. But what will you do? Will you let the serpent come in again? And will you let the serpent tell you about all these people, about what they're going to think and say? And what about this and that? And and, and maybe I'll make you like God. But actually, you see, that's what Satan has sold us in Christianity. Listen to me. I just hear the Holy Spirit say he has sold us a lie. This the serpent has come into our gardens yet again and told us, I will make you like God, but what he has actually sold us is a false religion of making us think that we can just go to church every Sunday and that's all God ever called us to. You see, what Adam and Eve was sold was a lie of of compromise, a shortcut to being more like God. But God is saying you don't need to take shortcuts. I have given you everything that you need right in front of you right now. The question is, is will you partake in all of it or will you compromise it yet again? In Luke 17, verse 21, we read, Neither shall they say, look here, look there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, God prophesies through the prophet Ezekiel about this coming tabernacle. And I want to submit to you that, you know, it's reality, at least on a spiritual level, is here with us today. He is speaking of a tabernacle from which living water flows. This is what Yeshua was speaking about. And he speaks and he says, when the tabernacle flood, this living water flows from it, he says in verse 12, on the banks on both sides of the river, they will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. If you become the tabernacle God has called you to be, you will have living water flow from you and you will have something happen called discipleship. See, that is what's being described is simply when loving water flows from you and waters other trees and trees are always representing people in the prophetic. 
And you see what he talks about these trees. He says they will have fruit growing on them, good, precious fruit and leaves for the healing of the nations. See, brothers and sisters, because of what he has done, we will bear good fruit. We will have healing for the nations. We as believers will lay our hands on the sick, whether physical or emotional or spiritual, and they will recover. But notice of this Ezekiel prophecy of when this water flows from the temple by the trees, he also connects to how it flows to the many other waters. And it says in verse 10, fishermen will stand beside the sea from the Engedi to Enaglium. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Each fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. See, brothers and sisters, he is connecting this to everything Yeshua taught his disciples to do. He is saying that when the water flows from the temple, the living water, and it connects to the greater waters, that there are many fish that are are attracted to it. Fish are attracted to living waters. People, you have been called to be a fisher of men, a fisher of people. That's what Yeshua called us to do. But he is saying it can only happen if you have loving waters, because that's what they're attracted by. That's why when Yeshua spread the net over the boat and they were and they pulled up the nets and it was full of fish by simply throwing it on the other side of the boat. It is because the fish were attracted to Yeshua, the living waters. If you do not have fish being attracted to you, perhaps it's because God wants you to have living waters restored to you this season, that you would actually be able to shine a light, to burn a bush, to have waters flow like never before. And perhaps I feel like the Lord has has at least spoken to my heart regarding this issue and pointed out that one of the main problems for why we struggle to see what he has promised for us is because within our temples, we do not have the bread of the presence. You see, when we look at the tabernacle, there was the bread of the presence, which the priest would come in every day and change it out for fresh bread just as he would change and make sure or make sure there's enough oil for the lampstand so that it would burn continuously. See, brothers and sisters, in the book of Revelation, he prophesies to the church of Ephesus and says, I'll remove your lampstand from you if you don't repent and rather you should then return to your first love. You see, brothers and sisters, many of us, we have fallen in love with something else more, even the things of God more than God himself, the study of God more than God himself, the Sabbath or the feasts of God more even than God himself. But Yeshua speaks to his disciples and warns them regarding the bread. And we read about how the disciples in Mark 8, verse 14, it says they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Yeshua cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
And verse 19, he says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And verse 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? Yeshua is warning his disciples about eating responsibly, that there are more than one kind of bread in this world. There is the bread of Yeshua, and he warns them about the bread, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. But what is this contrast? See, Yeshua spoke in the book of John, chapter 635, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever is hungry should eat of me and he shall not hunger anymore. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst anymore for I'll give him a living water. But see, when you think about the bread that he gave, it was a bread that multiplied. In other words, this is why you don't go hungry anymore. Because when you partake in this bread, it multiplies within you. And, and then you will never go hungry again. You will never be able to enter starvation. You will never be able to die. You will live forever. That is what he means by you saying you won't go hungry. But notice how this bread is a multiplying bread. In other words, it's not just for Yeshua. It's not just for his disciples, but it's a bread that is multiplying as much as needed for all who would come to believe in him. And if you eat of this bread and it multiplies within you unto eternal life where you don't go hungry, it multiplies past that and you overflow with abundance of his provisions of eternal life. You overflow with abundance of his provisions of living water. And that means that other people will inevitably taste and have a drink and have the bread. And this means that if you have the bread, but it does not multiply within you and it does not get into the mouths of other people. You need to question whether that bread is actually the bread of Yeshua because his bread does multiply. If you actually eat of him, it does multiply. You cannot partake in him and it does not multiply within you. If you eat of him, but you do not share, there is a big problem and a big question to ask the question of there's only one of two things that I could be either you do not truly fully believe what you have spoken you believe or you actually have no love to lay your life down so that they can partake in him and if that's the case do you actually really believe what Yeshua said that he is doing for us and for the world and do we actually even believe what we are being saved from and what the world is being saved from. If we have no desire for them to be saved from it, brothers and sisters, I am warning you about this because Satan is after the bread of Yeshua in your life. He is trying to steal the bread of the presence from your tabernacle. He is like a thief trying like he came and tried it with Yeshua. If he tried it with Yeshua, he'll try it with you. When Yeshua was in the wilderness, what happened? He was hungry. 
He had not eaten. He was fasting. And this enemy came and said, don't you want some bread? See, the enemy hoped was was trying to replace the bread of the presence of God. That was the very thing sustaining Yeshua with a other type of counterfeit. And Yeshua's rejection of the enemy meant that Yeshua continued to live, continued to go on, even though he had not eaten yet, because the father's bread multiplied in him unto eternal life. But see, brothers and sisters, when you have a temple and there is no bread within it, that is a dead temple without the presence. If you have a temple and there is no bread in it, but the enemy hopes to put something else there, we have an idol in a temple. And see, this is what Israel was facing in the wilderness. Think about this. They are in the wilderness as Yeshua is in the wilderness. And in Israel's wilderness, their continuous complaint was that they hoped to exchange the things of God, His presence, and what He has provided, the bread, the manna. They wanted to exchange it for the world, for the melons for Pharaoh. Can we go back to Pharaoh and his melons and leeks? Oh God, see, brothers and sisters, when we exchange the presence of our Lord for the presence of Pharaoh, this comes about when we hope to exchange the things of God for the things of this world. And then we find ourselves just like the Pharisees puffed up with leaven. And notice the Pharisees were believers. They believed in the Father. They thought and they said. But their religiosity was not enough. We can make the mistake to think we're good and safe with God because we do religious deeds. We keep a feast. We keep a Sabbath. We, keep a, we eat this way or we eat that way. Or we wash our hands. We don't do that. We wear this. We don't wear that. Or we do this. We don't do that. Thank you, Lord. I'm not like the tax collector. Whatever it is, we use to justify ourselves. Ultimately, if we do not have the bread of the presence, if we do not know him, if we do not have that relationship that is active and actually prospering with him, then it's all in vain. We can go and partake in religious things and feel full, but we will be malnourished. We may be fat and happy, but we will come before him pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And this danger for us, perhaps most, is when the things about God, a lot of which is holy and good even, takes the place of the bread of the presence of God himself. We get so focused on the things of him, which we grow to love, which is good, but we grow to love it more than God himself. We grow to cherish it more than Yeshua himself, because we have used these things in order to prop ourselves up, in order to justify ourselves, in order to call ourselves more holy, in order to make ourselves feel better, and in order to justify the pointing of the finger. But ultimately, we have to ask ourselves to test what kind of a bread we have. Do we talk more about his Sabbaths than about the gospel and Yeshua himself? 
Do we talk to teach our children more Hebrew words than about Yeshua himself and knowing him and knowing what it means to know him? Do we talk more about the signs of the end than actually ensuring we are prepared for the end and busy with the things of the end? I have no problem with Sabbaths. I have no problem with memorizing Hebrew words. I have no problem with the signs of the end. But what the father has a problem with is when these things take place of relationship. The scripture is so clear on this. Let me just ask you, what time is it? What time is it? What time is it? Is this the end of days? Is this the end of days? Yes, we know it is. But what does the scripture say about this? He says in Acts 2.17, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Are you a son? Are you a daughter? Are you an old man? Are you a young man? Because God has called you to become a son of God that is going to be empowered to prophesy, to dream dreams, to receive visions. He is saying these are what is supposed to be happening in the end of days. And if these things are not happening, we have to cry out. We have to say, God, something's wrong because, Lord, we're not ready for the end. If this is not happening in our lives, how can we say we're ready for the great tribulation? But we don't even have the signs of a believer follow what the Bible says is supposed to follow our life in the last days. How will we confront it when the sea is before us and Pharaoh's chariots are behind us? If we can't even confront such a thing before being in that moment, if we can't even pray for someone in our community, if we cannot even give our hand to the poor, if we cannot even believe in true faith that God heals, delivers, prophesies, speaks words that we ought to utter, that his spirit moves still today. So as we await the return of our king to be restored to the face to face with him, what is our charge while we are waiting? The disciples had this very question and they asked him, about when is it that he is going to be face to face, restoring his kingdom back to the world. They asked him in Acts 1, 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Notice how he comes and tells them, As for the times and seasons, you will not know what my father has done by his authority. It's not for you to know. But notice what Yeshua does next. He shifts the conversation from the end to the present. And he says what you ought to look to is what you need to be busy with now. And he says in verse 8, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yeshua, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He is directing them to the realization that he has called them to not fret over the end, but to be concerned with being a temple today, to be concerned with proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, because and if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And notice how the angels, as, they, as Yeshua gaze, goes and ascends into heaven and, and they're gazing into heaven, the angels, they come and they say, what are you looking at? What are you gazing at? He's going to come down the same way you saw him go. As to mean, don't just gaze into heaven, but be busy while you have time before he comes back. Because he's going to come back the same way he went, quickly, unexpectedly. But you better be like a wise virgin that has the oil. This is what the gospel is. You may now ask, well, Petey, how do I ensure I have the bread in my tabernacle? I'll tell you the same thing that Yeshua said in Luke 11. He told the story of a man who realized that he has no bread in his house, in his tabernacle. And so he went to his neighbor to knock on his door and ask for bread. Neighbor, could I have some bread? I have a special guest coming, he asks. But there is no answer. And He knocks again. Neighbor, could you answer? Neighbor, could you open the door? I have an, an, a guest coming, royalty coming, and I need the bread of the presence. But the neighbor does not answer. And Yeshua says that if this neighbor does not come to give him the bread because he is his friend, he will be doing so because of this man's persistence in knocking. Brothers and sisters, you have a special guest approaching your tabernacle, and he is about to be face to face with you. But the question is going to be, will he know you? Because he has put a spirit in you, but he desires bread in his house. I believe that my God hasn't changed. I believe that he delivers, that he closes the mouth of the lion, that he splits the Red Sea. I believe that he delivers us from all of our bondages. And so, God, I just speak to every person at the sound of my voice, Lord, who desires the bread in their house, that you would restore this back to them, God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would restore our first love back to us. God, I pray that you would put in your people's hearts the ability for them to become the tabernacle that you desire to indwell. God, I thank you that you've tabernacled among us and that you are among us and that you are within us and that you are eagerly looking to work through us. God, help us to be bold. 
Help us to be crucified. Help us to be dead to the opinions of man. Lord, I ask God that you would come and transform the way that your people think about the gospel itself, their purpose itself. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would start seeing their identity in a new light like never before. And Father, I just speak to disease and sickness at the sound of my voice. I speak to trauma, depressions, anxieties, suicidal thoughts, a lot of which has come because your people have not known who they are. I thank you that you're restoring it back and showing them who they are. And so I command every unclean spirit of depression and anxiety to leave God's people now at the sound of my voice. God, I thank you, Lord, for every demon that will leave now. God, I thank you right now for every disease that will leave now. God, I thank you right now, Lord, for making people strengthened now. I thank you for delivering them of social anxieties now in the name of Yeshua. God, I thank you, Lord, for everything, Lord, that you have given us on the cross, being pierced to give us water and blood. Help us to do something with what you have given us. Pray this in the name of Yeshua. If this teaching has been a blessing to you, consider partnering with us. I want to say a special thank you to our partners who have made this teaching and these feast teachings possible. Many blessings and shalom.